Welcome, everybody. This is FinCast, the Financial Integrity Network's podcast series. This is our first podcast. I'm Juan Zarati, chairman and co-founder of FIN, the Financial Integrity Network. And I'm Chip Ponce. Great to be with you, Juan, president and co-founder of the Financial Integrity Network. Uh, we're excited to be doing these uh, podcasts uh, now uh, on behalf of our company, uh, which is dedicated to uh, financial integrity, uh, lifting standards around the world for our clients, helping to find what good looks like in the context of financial integrity and business. Uh, and we're excited to be able to talk with you and, frankly, to talk with each other. Uh, Chip and I have worked a long time together. We're longtime best friends, uh, and we've built this company together. And uh, we hope you find our conversations interesting as we develop this podcast series, uh, and we're looking forward to this. Absolutely, Juan. Thank you. Let's get started. So what are we talking about today? Let's do it. Uh, Chip, let's start with a, with a big you know, macro issue, which is sort of uh, facing the, the community that deals with financial integrity issues. And let's talk about the evolution and effectiveness of the anti-money laundering and what's called the countering of financing of terrorism system. And the fundamental question of, is it working? Uh, and I think this is a, a key question now especially in the wake of all of these bank fines that you see for banks failing to have anti-money laundering systems or sanctions systems in place, billions of dollars of fines to all the major global banks. You have uh, issues like the Panama Papers scandal that reveals that there's sanctions evasion, tax evasion, money laundering happening uh, around the world. Uh, you've got the 1MDB scandal out of uh, Malaysia, this big corruption case that's uh, affecting uh, big chunks of the world. And really fundamental questions uh, as to whether or not the system that's built around transparency, accountability, traceability that so many of us have put years into and so much money uh, to the tune of billions of dollars have been invested, whether or not that system's actually working. Fascinating question, and, and I couldn't agree more. A great way to kick off the podcast series, certainly provocative and one uh, – an issue that invites um, a rigorous debate that I think we're finally starting to see internationally. I would add to the frustrations that you cited about uh, the billions of dollars in enforcement in fines and uh, the increasing recognition that our quantitative metrics on this are not systemically persuasive um, with the frustration of an industry that sees no bottom to the cost of compliance to say, that uh, even in, in dollars and cents in compliance systems, there's clearly a lot more being invested in the technologies and uh, the resources, the human capital uh, being poured into financial crime compliance with seemingly not, uh, at least now, uh, systemically relevant results in improving uh, the resiliency of the system from uh, penetration by illicit actors and networks. And uh, so in part, this is where's the bottom and are we perennially underinvested? And in part, it's are we misinvested? Are we looking in the wrong directions? Are we in, investing in the wrong areas? Um, and these are the sorts of questions that are now driving, I think, a healthy discussion about um, examining the effectiveness of what has been built, in part by uh, a number of our friends and, and colleagues in government and in the private sector. And whether we can do things better. So it's a great time to be having this conversation. It's a great way to kick off the podcast series. And 
you're the best person in the world to be talking about this with. So. No, it's the other way around. Now, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, I, I'm uh, I'm fan number one of the Chip Ponzi fan club, and uh, <laughs> he is. Uh, I've said this to to everyone publicly when I've given speeches and to clients. He's the the most sophisticated, uh, the best mind on issues related oh, stop. to money I'm just, I'm just trying to keep up with you. No, no, that's no, true. Um, but Chip, to your point, before we launch into kind of the, the key issues we want to talk about, um, what's interesting and important for the listener to know is, you know, the, the, the debate around effectiveness of the system is really upon us, right? That this is an issue that uh, U.S. Treasury, finance ministries around the world, central banks, uh, regulators, uh, policymakers, and the regulated parties themselves, banks, other financial institutions, are starting to really grapple with, you know, is it an effective system? Is it sustainable? And so that's in part why this discussion is so interesting, too, because it's, it's a debate that's really unfolding before our eyes. Um, let's do this, Chip. Uh, Can I just add briefly yeah. that real quickly, Juan? Yeah. I obviously fully agree with that, but also point to um, the benefit of that recognition in policy circles a number of years ago leading to now the fourth round of assessments by the Financial Action Task Force of jurisdictions in not just their technical compliance with the global standards that effectively def define the AML-CFT system as it's evolved, but also the effectiveness of those systems in combating financial crime. And that, that that development with the evolution of the revised standards in 2013 from the FATF and the effectiveness methodology um, that uh, underpin the fourth round give us an opportunity to evaluate, to have this discussion with some data that's coming in, and clearly uh, people who are focused on this and assessing, at least from a jurisdictional perspective, whether the system is as effective as it could be and where it isn't, um, perhaps why. Yeah. No, and I, and I didn't mean to ignore that because we're going to come back to it because, uh, frankly, you led uh, much of that effort internationally as the head of the U.S. delegation to FATF. Uh, and frankly, one of the key drivers internationally is the fact that FATF has this new round of assessments precisely around the question of effectiveness. And Proud to be part of an <clears throat> incredible group of people well, who did that. a great group you. of folks, yeah. But, uh, you know, the debates that you even had in, in those days around how do you even define effectiveness and, and what, are the, what are the rules uh, around what, which the assessments will be made, right? Those are, those are key questions. Let's, let's talk uh, a bit about this. And you and I have had long discussions, um, both in preparation for this and, and over time, uh, to talk about how we evaluate whether or not the system's working. And, f you know, first talk about uh, the evolution of the system. Uh, talk about the objectives of the system and how those have shifted and evolved over time. Uh, talk about how the system's actually worked um, and some key accomplishments. Uh, and then talk through some key challenges to the effectiveness, and then a bit of a roadmap for a way forward. Uh, you and I have done some, some writing and thinking about that, and uh, we'll be sure to share that with, uh, with the listeners uh, once that's out. But let's start first, Chip, uh, and you have a neat way of thinking about the evolution of the system. Take, take us through uh, how you think about the evolution of the AML-CFT system. Great question, and the enemy here, as always, is is time. We'll right? keep it quick. So, <laughs> here's the Cliff Notes. Uh, uh, here's the Cliff Notes tour of, of the evolution of the system, from at least my perspective. And I've I've been very fortunate to be a part of that evolution, um, at least towards towards the middle of a process that I'll outline in a minute. But uh, before I do this, just to 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 acknowledge that um, the AML CFT system, which grew out of the criminalization of money laundering in the 1980s, and 
the realization and, and the, the drug wars that going after the money um, may be more effective than going after the product uh, at a minimum was, uh, was no longer a luxury but a necessity for us to, uh, to really make a systematic impact on transnational organized crime that was engaging in, in, the, in the illicit drug trade. And, and there, there's a generation of people who, who put that together that were truly visionary. And uh, but for that group, we wouldn't be having this conversation, yep. right? So yep, exactly. going all the way back to, to the mid-'80s and early-'80s and the criminalization of, of, uh, of uh, money laundering and the creation of the Financial Action Task Force by the G7 in 1989 is the right starting point. And, and, and that, uh, that step really created a construct of the AML system that – is based on the, the, still the fundamental components of prevention in the financial system, uh, reporting to uh, financial intelligence units to understand, analyze, and distribute that information to uh, law enforcement agencies that have jurisdiction and competence to investigate money laundering. Things and like suspicious activity reports. Exactly. You know, SARS, exactly. people are used and, to. And, and moving from reporting and analysis and investigation to prosecution and asset forfeiture. You know, th- those remain... Um, the fundamental elements of the AML system, and of course, connecting those those uh, functions of the AML system across borders through international cooperation. I mean, that, that has always been the framework for everything that's grown since. So, uh, laying that out first as the first stage, and the generation of folks who put that together is essential. And then, the, as, as I see it, there, there were four stages beyond that initial stage that um, really marked an evolution of the system that we that we are now debating today. Um, the, the first uh, move forward from that premise, uh, I, I think, is looking at the expansion and the strengthening of those fundamental elements of the system to include not just banks, but non-bank financial institutions that, um, as our financial system evolved and became more sophisticated, particularly um, after the Cold War and the opening of global capital markets, that the extension of the FAT of preventive measures to non-bank financial institutions um, is a big evolution and uh, was concomitant with, an, with a, an expansion of predicates to money laundering from not just drug trafficking, but ultimately all serious crime, uh, fraud and, and a range of predicate offenses that the FATF has spelled out, and most recently to include serious tax crimes. So that's, a, that's an expansion both in predicates and in coverage of the financial system that's important to recognize as a second phase. Yeah. It's often forgotten, too. There's so much focus on the banks. Absolutely. For good reason, of course. A- absolutely. But, but, but that's a key development. And then third, I would point to the globalization of the system. Uh, beyond uh, the G7 and the, the initial members of the FATF, to encompass the whole world. And, and that process really started with another generation of, of experts that we have to thank for, for the system that we have today, those that um, had the foresight, uh, the wisdom, and frankly, the guts to challenge the global community with a blacklisting process in the late 90s that uh, made it very clear that you can't opt out of this system. This is not an opt-in, opt-out. If you want to be part of a global financial system and part of a global economy, then you need to play by global rules. And that includes FATF standards. Or there will be a risk premium associated with doing business for you, and that risk premium will be captured in a blacklisting process. That, that's an essential part of recognizing the evolution of the system to become truly global. Um, and associated with that, an entire framework that has grown around the FATF to include regional bodies, to include the IMF and the World Bank, and ultimately endorsement by the UN, the G20. You know, huge accomplishments associated with that. Yeah, just, just a side note on that. I, I think, especially for those who are interested in this field and in international relations, 
fascinating that the blacklisting process, which is not a UN-based process, not a treaty-based process, has had such a dramatic impact in terms of getting the attention of jurisdictions to pass the necessary laws, uh, implement new uh, procedures, uh, put in place things like FIUs, financial intelligence units, uh, and how important that's been reputationally and the market impact of those blacklistings. And it, it's really an important moment uh, to, to underscore what you're saying, Chip, that that blacklisting process actually revealed the power of the international community of interested actors, in this case for AML purposes, uh, to actually get the attention of jurisdictions to say, look, you've got to play by certain rules if you're going to be considered legitimate. And that still continues today. Without a doubt. And amid great debate over what is international law and why is FATF relevant in the absence of conventional uh, thinking of what international law looks like. And, and the short answer is because uh, markets take it seriously. And, That's right. And, and I think the blacklisting process has borne that out. As a fourth stage, uh, beyond the globalization of the system, looking at the national securitization, as we've, as we've said for so long, um, of that system, um, as much as the NCCT process um, and, and sort of my universe, I, you know, I can't give enough credit to our, to our good friend Danny Glazer for all the work that he's done uh, for everyone uh, in, in really managing and steering and, and driving so much of, of this work globally. Um, but the national securitization of this really sits uh, um, you know, as a, a compl- key, co- key accomplishment legacy of yours from Treasury, where in a, in a post— uh, hours, nine, hours. Nine, <laughs> Well, there's a lot of help from everybody, right? But th- th- this was a, uh, an incredible development where uh, post 9-11, the recognition that we needed the AML system in order to give real teeth and effectiveness to a terrorism financing strategy, that there is no CFT without AML. And that was quickly recognized in concept. I think we've all learned over time how much harder that is in practice. Yeah. But uh, no doubt a key evolution in, in the uh, AML CFT system was the introduction of CFT post 9-11 and all of the challenges and opportunities associated with the national securitization of AML, which is what that integration really did, yeah. is, is a key fourth stage. Yeah, and, and I think what's interesting there is it really began to introduce not just the imperative of national security in the context of the system we're talking about, but also the overlap, right? And so People often forget Title III of the Patriot Act, known as kind of the intelligence bill post-9-11, passed in October of 2001, uh, had in place uh, largely uh, Title III, which is the expansion of the AML system, the broadening and the deepening of it, to uh, sort of accelerate all the elements before, right? Hitting non-bank financial institutions, uh, clarifying uh, customer due diligence uh, requirements, uh, requirements with respect to shell banks, all these things that were essential to transparency and accountability were at the heart of the key bill, really, post 9-11. Exactly. Um, and, and, and there are other examples of that, but I think it's really an important point. You began to see the overlap uh, of those issues in very real uh, and material ways. Exactly. And, uh, and then the last, and, and again, we can have a, a deep dive, as you know, and for, for listeners that are interested, and we've got, we've got to figure this one out in our first podcast, how we... Uh, make sure that we're, we're responsive to interest from the listeners. Uh, each of these topics, I think, is worthy of a podcast at some point, um, and it'll be interesting to see what others think of that. But uh, as, a fifth, as a fifth stage, and really it's kind of, kind of the final one that brings us to the effectiveness question, I think of the financial crisis and um, how that crisis uh, made very clear that without the financial transparency and accountability that we achieve 
through sound AML implementation. We do not have the ability to understand or manage all forms of risk that are relevant to financial governance. And we see this in the Global Forum and the work of the OECD and tax reform and the relationship between customer due diligence and understanding um, offshore accounts and uh, the reporting systems that are now um, replacing the push systems from, of, of, or, or the pull systems of, of old into proactive uh, reporting. We see this in, in looking at uh, the work of the G20, where financial transparency, financial accountability, and integrity is intimately tied to the work of the FATF and, and AML, and, and the integration of that work into the broader financial governance questions. And, and it gets into all sorts of challenges that we'll talk about soon. As you expand the financial system beyond banks or recognize that that expansion has happened, how do you achieve the, the regulatory and the, and the examination and supervisory coverage that you need to competently and confidently manage that system, um, not just for AML, but for financial governance across the board? Where, where are there differences in risk? Um, where, how, how do you account for those in terms of uh, resources? And where do we leverage um, supervisors, examiners that are already there for potential purposes? Those are key questions that um, the integration of AML through the financial crisis into the, the broader financial governance and financial reform agenda is key. Yeah. And I, and I think, w to your point, Chip, it's critical for people to keep that period in mind, in part because I think it, it reemphasized this question of what risk management means, right, to your point, um, and began to, to force the question of what's risk management across the board with respect to transparency and accountability. Um, and frankly, the, the, the reality, and this is something you and other colleagues at Treasury pushed, uh, the idea that um, integrity of the financial system uh, is actually central to the very notion of safety and soundness. It's not just sort of classic banking principles or financial principles uh, that, that are at play uh, post-financial crisis, but it's actually these issues tied to money laundering uh, and countering the finance, financing of terrorism that is fundamental to the financial system. There's that no better, really I, I couldn't moment. agree more, Juan, and there's no better example of that for our audience than the headlines that we've seen about um, the HSBC actions and the the very difficult uh, question of what do you do if you have a systemically relevant bank of which we've now seen just about every Wolfsburg bank uh, put into um, a difficult position of settlement with U.S. authorities for um, what are stipulated, agreed upon actions that in, in the minds of many were criminal. And uh, to the extent that, uh, that those actions become the basis for um, effectively delicensing a bank. This is exactly what we're talking about, right? Where the, if, if there is a failure of financial integrity systematically across our global banking community or within some of our key global banks, and I certainly don't mean to pick on HSBC, I think there's, there's uh, a whole host of global banks that find themselves in this position, um, but it, you could see where a financial integrity uh, lens and without consideration of collateral impact could uh, could absolutely cause systemic uh, disruptions that could be catastrophic. If you take one of these or some of these banks offline, even for a temporary period of time, um, that's, a, that's a big big disruption to the global financial system. And it's raised the questions of too big to jail and too big to fail. And you know those are those are nice taglines, but they they simplify what are very difficult um, intersections between financial integrity and financial stability and the fact that we do rely on the global banking community as the essential intersection for uh, financing and fueling our global economy. Yeah. And Chip, that's a good segue into uh, talking more uh, specifically about the 
evolving objectives uh, of the system. I mean, you, you described very neatly in the five stages the sort of the, the evolution of the system. Um, and with that evolution has come an, uh, an evolution of the objectives where, uh, you know, in the, in the 1980s and, and largely in the 1990s, the system was still geared around law enforcement principles, the, the follow the money principles around doing precisely what the system was supposed to do, which is to ferret out uh, illicit activity, to try to stop it. If, you, if, you, if it happens, you discover it, and then you prosecute it, you, you seize assets, et cetera, as you described. Um, but that, that changed because there was such a, a recognition that the system was critical, uh, not just to sanctions, not just to national security, but to the fundamentals of, of the global financial order. And uh, that then began to explicitly, at least in, in our world, shift uh, the focus of the system, uh, which has caused some, some ripple effects and some, some challenges and no doubt some, uh, some stress in the system. And that, that has largely been a, around a, an imperative that the system serve national and international security principles and that ultimately uh, the system be about the protection of the integrity of the global financial and commercial system itself, that uh, the, the campaigns and strategies of financial exclusion, where rogue capital, rogue actors are, tr are kept out or at least deterred from entering the system, uh, is a fundamental part of how we think about the, the safety, soundness, and, and health of that system. And, and that shift from a, a more sort of pure law enforcement tactical uh, objective of the system to a more systemic uh, goal is really a fundamental shift and one that, as you and I have talked about, Chip, is not often recognized explicitly, certainly not recognized in law um, yet, uh, but has certainly been a driver for how we've thought about uh, where laws, regulations, and, and policies and procedures go. W would you agree with that? I couldn't agree more. And maybe the most important point, Juan, of the entire podcast is uh, you, you can think about the evolution that we've just covered as an interesting context for this question, which is before we can assess effectiveness, what are we trying to achieve? There's no way to assess whether you're doing well or not without real clar clarity around what is the objective. And unfortunately, I, I think we are at a, a state in which there's real confusion or disconsonance around what is the objective or what are the objectives of the AML-CFT system as it's evolved. And uh, the good news is that we're debating this now. And so there's an opportunity to really reconcile what, at the end of the day, are, are, are pretty different um, objectives from, from, from inception of this system to the evolution of where we find ourselves. And, and you've hit them nicely. Um, I would just add to your characterization that you know, the, the inception of this system to produce information useful to law enforcement, which is a paraphrase of the Bank Secrecy Act and, and obviously tax um, information authorities, to be to be expanded to include counterterrorism authorities post 911 it was it was reactive by its very by its very objective to say we're going to produce information to you the government to deal with um, this information in whatever way makes sense to you the government which classically to your point was about criminal investigation prosecution and forfeiture um, post 911 became about intelligence gathering and and analysis uh, of, of illicit networks um, in ways that could lead to non-criminal um, consequences. But it was reactive by the very nature of those objectives. And to your point, over time, 
um, in part due to the importance of financial integrity to the stability of the system, in part due to the evolution of sanctions and the introduction of sanctions into the AMLCFT uh, framework, it wasn't enough to be simply reactive to potentially bad actors or suspicious activity. It became important to understand at, at inception, before onboarding, whether the uh, customers or the products or the markets that financial institutions were considering um, introduced prohibitive risk. And, and that's a completely different kind of objective, of prevention um, rather than reaction. Um, it's proactive, it's systematic, as to, to your point, rather than episodic. And it's introduced real stress on systems that, that perhaps at, at inception were not designed uh, to be uh, proactive, preventive, but to be more reactive and, and transactional. Yeah. So that, that's, that's key. As an intermediary between those two, two uh, uh, points of inception and where we find ourselves, I think it's really important to recognize um, the objective of financial transparency and accountability because that's an objective that, as you know, we debated even in explaining the challenges of implementation of the Bank Secrecy Act back in 2002, 2003. And uh, that notion that the purpose of the BSA is to uh, produce a transparent, accountable financial system was understandably contested rig rigorously and vigorously by industry, by regulators, um, and by many policymakers, because that, in fact, is not what the law says. But it was, it's an interesting reflection on the, the acknowledgement that I think in certain policy circles, ourselves included, that without that transparency and accountability, there was no way to stitch the original purpose of transaction reporting with the ultimate purpose of protecting the integrity of the financial system. If you do not understand who you're doing business with and you're not accountable for protecting the integrity of the financial system, then there's no way that we get to a point where that integrity can be systematically protected, preserved in the way that we now expect. So, so that shift of objectives over time in the way that we've just discussed, I, I haven't seen that really articulated or acknowledged to the extent that I think it needs to for us to begin to solve this effectiveness question. We have to first agree on what is it that we're trying to achieve. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a fundamental point, Chip, and, and no one has, says it better than you. Um, I think there's two other dimensions of this, uh, both uh, an effect of uh, the, the shifting objectives and also a part of it. Um, uh, an effect of this, um, both by virtue of this shift as well as by design was to put financial institutions and the regulated parties uh, in a more central role in terms of managing these, these very risks. And so it was more than just uh, deputizing the banks uh, to report uh, to law enforcement or uh, banks becoming policemen uh, of, of their systems. It was actually the fundamental question of whether or not they could manage the risk. To your point, to prevent illicit or rogue actors from even accessing their system and, and understanding by customer, by transaction, by market, uh, by product, what's actually happening in their system. That's created enormous, not only expectation, but also stress in the system. And it's happened by design in part because one of the things we, we did at Treasury and, and U.S. government has, has helped lead was very much strategies that put banks in particular at the center of these strategies of financial exclusion to say, uh, do you know your customer? Uh, do you know your customer in the context of very risky uh, national security environments? Um, and uh, are you doing everything possible to exclude those rogue actors from your system? It's incredibly powerful as a strategy, uh, but incredibly stressful for the private sector being put in that position. The other thing that's 
it's a corollary, but it's, it's part of this evolution, is the fact that in the national security context, as this became a, a, and has become a more central part of the AML-CFT system, you, you've had a fundamental shift toward uh, the use of conduct-based sanctions more aggressively and more expansively. Um, and it's the idea that sanctions are no longer uh, simply trade-based, no longer simply jurisdictionally based, but are very much about enduring transnational conduct, illicit conduct, uh, that the United States considers to be of national security concern, and that frankly is of international security concern. So we, we've moved from terrorist financing in the post-9-11 period uh, to proliferation financing. Uh, the executive order signed in 2005, and frankly all the efforts you did, Chip, uh, FATF to create new standards around those issues. Uh, then issues around organized crime, kleptocracy, human rights, now even cybersecurity and the executive order that President Obama signed uh, in April of, of last year, 2015. Uh, and so as you've had this evolution and this shift of objectives, you've also had an expansion of how we thought about national security and the use of these tools of exclusion. That too has created stress uh, and positive and negative externalities and, and really an important part of that shift as well. Great points, Juan, and, and, and two comments that I, I can't um, help but making. One is, uh, and, and perhaps uh, this is not something that uh, those that defend uh, our sanctions programs on the basis of IEPA want to hear uh, uttered, but the reality is that for, for those institutions that thought that sanctions were always going to be about temporary emergency um, scenarios and where we, we have uh, what are um, national security um, uh, band-aids effectively to deal with temporary emergencies with, with um, overwhelming authority, such as through sanctions. Those days are over with the advent of conduct-based sanctions. Uh, I don't think anyone is, is going to be able to, to say with any confidence that the war on drugs, on terrorism, on cybercrime, on corruption, on uh, transnational organized crime. I mean, right. These are elements of the human condition. So, so, you know, the notion that this is temporary, yeah. it's not temporary. And, and the point of that isn't to introduce stress into uh, the, the sort of uh, uh, keeping our legal system current with realities of our sanctions programs. The point of that is simply to say that uh, for institutions that are trying to design compliance systems that are sustainable um, and that allow them to compete and grow in, in, in an environment that's increasingly complex, there, there was a realization several years ago, but I think for some still relatively new, that sanctions, sanctions implementation and compliance that gets at the very heart of prevention at the point of onboarding or at the point of screening transactions is, is, is now uh, an, an internal uh, and perennial element of this system, that it's not here today, gone tomorrow, we'll solve this crisis today and or tomorrow in a way that allows you to just ramp up and outsource some of this. This is now part of the routine risk management of, uh, of combating illicit finance, that whether we call that the AMLCFT system or we add the sanctions moniker, it's a reality to the financial integrity mission. And, and it has real consequences for institutions on what they invest in, how they invest, and how they structure their compliance systems in ways that are synergistic and enduring. Yeah. And that last point's important, Chip, because I think we have seen the blend of the AML, CFT, and sanction systems in some fundamental ways where sanctions are dealing with these illicit 
uh, conducts, uh, often predicates to money laundering and maybe money laundering itself. Right? Absolutely. Uh, for example, you look at North Korea. North Korea is a criminal state in a very real way uh, laundering money. So uh, the blend of uh, the systems, the definitions, the requirements um, is interesting because it creates stress and forces what had you know, been in the 1980s and 90s separate disciplines to be seen as quite similar. And so you've got now money laundering regulations that look awful lot like sanctions programs, like Section 311 of the Patriot Act. And you have sanctions programs like the Ukraine and Russian SSI program that begin to look an awful lot like uh, AML-CFT systems and risk-based uh, sanction systems. So we're, we're in a very interesting period where there is a blending of, of those systems precisely because the objectives have shifted. And I think, I think to your point earlier, I don't think people have really recognized how important that shift has been and how that's driven a lot of what we're discussing. Without a doubt. And, and, and it leads to um, one of these uh, paradoxes that uh, you and I often talk about with, with our clients and, and with others in the industry about how the evolution of the financial crime compliance regime has at once required specialization at an unprecedented level into understanding what a list of finance is and compliance regimes designed to deal with those specific elements of illicit finance, whether it's corruption and anti-bribery and corruption controls, money laundering and AML controls, um, sanctions and sanctions compliance controls, that, that those elements and others require a degree of specialization that is unprecedented. And at the same time, that those special, specializations or specialties need to be integrated into a holistic risk management function that is beyond the second line of defense, so to speak, uh, and must be embedded into the lines of business in the way that, that, that uh, financial institutions think about um, their business interests, think about their customers, and think about their operations. That, that is the culture of compliance, uh, as you know, uh, crisis or debate or um, evolution that, that we've been witnessing. And none of that happens without the boardroom obviously understanding this. Um, and yet, uh, it's surprising to me how um, both the specialization and the integration of, of this compliance mission while seemingly at odds with one another, are, are essential to ultimately a, a fully effective and, and, uh, and robust uh, compliance regime in our financial institutions and across our financial system. Yeah. That's a lot on, on the shoulders of industry. We haven't talked really much about um, what's on the shoulders of governments and, and some of the challenges facing governments. But um, We'll talk maybe, about that in a second. Maybe we can do yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's shift now real quickly, Chip, um, and we can talk through some key accomplishments because there's been, as you I say, Herculean uh, efforts made uh, in making the system work, in shifting these objectives, um, and making it relevant, again, not just for law enforcement, but for national security, broader uh, public policy and regulatory purposes uh, for the health of the system. So um, there have been some key accomplishments, but they're huge challenges. Um, so let's let's talk very quickly about some key accomplishments. Maybe maybe I'll just summarize them, and you you can tell me if you think I'm wrong. But um, <laughs> and frankly, you can you can always add. Uh, but uh, whether or not that means and, I won't and, get a chance to talk. No 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 then, right, then, no no. Then we'll go we'll go to key challenges because I think the interesting question for for us and likely for listeners is uh, okay, what's the judgment and and what's next? And so just real quickly, I think it's important to keep in mind what has been achieved. Um, and there's no question that the campaigns and strategies of financial exclusion 
whether with respect to al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups, with respect to Iran, uh, in certain instances with respect to North Korea, have been successful, at least to a certain extent. There's always the criticism that uh, the efforts with respect to the use of sanctions or other financial measures uh, are imperfect. Uh, they never solve every problem. They're not going to necessarily stop uh, the regime in Pyongyang from moving toward nuclear capabilities. Uh, but the question is, can you use these tools not only to uh, make it harder, costlier, and riskier for them to raise and move money around the world, but can you affect their strategic behavior and decision-making? Uh, and that's clearly been the case uh, with these regimes and the targets of these, uh, these campaigns. And, and, you know, it's not just us saying it. They've said it themselves, right? The, we've heard it from Tehran. We've heard it from Pyongyang. We saw it in the memos from bin Laden in Abbottabad. You know, th these things have hurt and they've stung, and yeah, it's the work of the international community that's done it. So that's, that's important. And it's essential. It's essential so to know that this stuff ultimately works, it's all about, and right? it hurts those that, that have been targeted by it. Um, the, the notion, to your point earlier, that there's now a sense that this is now global as well as relevant to the financial community at large. Now, that's imperfect. We'll get to the challenges. But uh, there's no question now that everyone accepts the fact that these are core principles that apply globally, uh, and that apply to not just banks, but to how the financial system itself works. And that, that in and of itself is an accomplishment, because we weren't there three decades ago, two, even two decades ago, obviously. Um, the third is this move toward the question of effectiveness itself. I mean, something that, frankly, you've led, Chip, and, and folks like Danny Glazer, Jen Fallon, and others at Treasury have been a part of, and, and FATF leadership as well, um, debated at the Financial Action Task Force, and now taking root in the context of the fourth round of assessments, which are, are now underway, and that countries around the world are having to grapple with and, frankly, uh, ask themselves, looking in the mirror, does our system actually work? Does it actually stop illicit financing from coursing through the system? Are we actually capturing it? Uh, or is this just a paper process? Um, and I think that is fundamental because that international uh, question of legitimacy and effectiveness is underway and it's beginning to reshape the landscape. And so that, you know, that kudos to you, Chip, and the, the entire community that was interested in that question long ago because it's come at the right time. Uh, and I would also say that um, the deepening of the sense of what financial transparency actually means, not just the acceptance of it, but what it actually means. And so this question now of understanding ultimate beneficial ownership uh, customer due diligence, uh, the debate raging around the world about having corporate registries what, and what that looks like and in what form and who has access, et cetera. All of that is a, is, a, is a huge accomplishment because we're getting right to the root of the question of do we believe that financial transparency actually matters? And you and I do. Um, and you and I believe that fundamentally, uh, if you don't have transparency, none of this really works. Right. We can, a lot of it is a Potemkin village of a process that, that will not ultimately be effective. Unless Potemkin you, village. I love it. You like that? Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll stick with that. Um, and so, so I, think, I think that's a key, key accomplishment. Again, not without fits and starts, not without lots of trade-offs, not without uh, controversies. And, and certainly much of this has been sparked by things like the Panama Papers and, and questions there. So, again, uh, a, a good and important development. Um, and, and finally, I would say the, the idea that especially in major global institutions, there's a recognition that 
these are not just uh, compliance issues to be uh, kind of managed at a tactical level, but fundamentally that this is about cultures of compliance and uh, managing risk in a way that's more fundamental to how they're doing business than in the past. Again, we've talked to clients uh, often about this. We, we talk publicly about this, but the very notion that uh, how a major global bank views its role and its systems um, in the AML CFT context is now central to how they think about banking. It's not ancillary. It's not a, just a cost center. It's now central to what <clears throat> banking is and how, frankly, they should be thinking about growth. How do you grow with a robust culture of compliance? And so that's, a, that's, a, that's nascent in many ways, uh, not fully globalized, but um, certainly a major accomplishment of this period that has moved along with the shifting objectives. Completely agree. And, and, and that's quite a list, right? I mean, because we're going to talk about the challenges, and it's, it's essential to recognize the progress that's been achieved for, for a couple of reasons. One is the, the, the challenges that are facing us and that we'll get into in a minute are daunting, and they're difficult, and they will uh, inevitably engender quite a bit of frustration about, is, is this all worth it? Is it really working? And it's impossible to have an honest conversation about that without recognizing what's been achieved so far and the successes that, we, that we've gained globally through, through a, global, a, a global commitment to AML-CFT, the results that you've talked about, the global framework that's been achieved, the focus on effectiveness now, the fact that people are I'm interested where this is a centerpiece of global security as well as financial integrity. Uh, the fact that we've got uh, something that I would also point to, uh, ex expertise in the, in, in the design of the system in many ways. Uh, you know, the implementation challenges that we're, that we're talking about, financial transparency as a, as a, key, um, as a key example of this, the, the, the folks in the Financial Action Task Force that really put together these standards, I mean, in many ways are being vindicated by um, these debates in the sense that much of the fourth round effectiveness is, is about implementation of standards that have been on the books that were strengthened and modified in, in some key areas in 2012, 2013 with the new standards and methodology, but effectively were put in place in 2003, you know, the guts of this, whether it's company formation reform or beneficial ownership um, or the extension to DNF, to non-bank financial institutions right. and to and to non-financial uh, institution business, businesses and professions. You know, these were all done over a decade ago and in many ways were, were very prescient in, in anticipating uh, where this would need to go in order to achieve the financial transparency that many of us think is essential to making the system systematically more effective. So a lot of credit to those that have put together those standards in anticipation of these challenges. Um, and the real question is not just um, is financial trans transparency essential, which I think more and more people are are, are agreeable in concept. It's is it achievable, and and, and of course, the, as with most questions, it's not an on or off switch, yeah. right? There are degrees of this, and what is commercially uh, practical or reasonable, and what is what is um, absolutely essential as a bare minimum to protect our national security, or is really where that debate is starting to go. And, and another dimension, and this is worth another podcast, but you know there are questions of privacy and security that go along Without with questions of financial transparency. You know, there, there are reasons to not want certain governments to know who you are, where you have your money, uh, and how, uh, how you're operating uh, when you're talking about autocratic uh, or, or totalitarian regimes, right? So there, there are re real interesting uh, debates around what the contours of transparency look like 
in a global environment where not every country is, is Norway or the United States. Absolutely. Um, all right, let's shift now to the challenges, because uh, as you said, Chip, the challenges are, are, are enormous. And we're not just talking about challenges to sort of the, the current workings of the system. The, the question is, what are the challenges to effectiveness? It, again, is the system actually doing what it's intended to do? Um, and I think it, maybe it, I'll, I'll run through kind of a thumbnail sketch of, of what some of those are. And Chip, no doubt you will agree or disagree again. Um, but I, I think there are uh, some fundamental ones. And we've seen it with our clients. We've seen it, obviously, in our, in our prior roles and, and, and you in spades and what you did at the FATF and, and at U.S. Treasury. But um, I think there, there's some fundamental ones to think about. Um, the very idea of information sharing itself is, is stressed, uh, if not flawed. And, and that is both a function of technological deficiencies, but also legal strictures and deficiencies. Uh, and so if you look at global enterprises um, uh, who we are asking to manage their risk, to engage in enterprise-wide risk assessments and management, the reality is if they're operating in multiple jurisdictions, uh, they're going to have huge challenges in terms of how they actually share information internally about customers, about transactions, um, and there are enormous uh, legal consequences uh, if they don't get that calculus right. And so. Uh, the, the very notion of being able to manage risk across borders, even within institutions, is, is highly flawed. Uh, secondly, the, the information flow to uh, authorities um, uh, and how that operates through the suspicious activity reporting, uh, the currency transaction reporting, um, and how that operates in different jurisdictions or in, or in different ways uh, is also not highly efficient. And there's a real question as to whether or not uh, the, the, the multitudes of SARS that are filed uh, around the world with exponential increase over the, over the course of the last few years uh, is actually making a difference. To your point earlier is uh, this quantitative match qualitative difference, and it's not really clear that that's the case. Uh, there are some success stories, no doubt, uh, but is it, is it matching the increase in volume and the increase in attention? It's not clear. Um, there's also the, the question of whether or not um, information is shared beyond the touch points of institutions themselves. The, systems, the system as designed in the 1980s and 90s is very much a one-to-one -one system. That is to say it's about one particular institution's risks and its ability to report that or to identify that or manage that uh, with authorities or, or internally. The problem, of course, is if we're talking about having an effective system to protect the integrity of, at a minimum, a sector like the banking sector or the insurance sector, uh, you have to look beyond the boundaries of an institution, the touch points of their customers and transactions. And the sight lines of that are often blurred. Uh, they, they are, um, and, and they aren't clear. And uh, that means that both authorities and institutions don't know what's happening often beyond the boundaries of what's being reported in that one-to-one -one system and chain. And so the, the very kind of idea of information sharing, which is so critical to transparency and traceability and accountability, is itself challenged in this environment. Um, two other sort of major challenges, um, Chip, is that despite the evolution of trying to regulate the system uh, beyond the banks, uh, there are dark corners of the financial system that still have not seen the light of regulation or enforcement. Uh, and you're beginning to see regulators around the world uh, 
pay more attention to sectors that have uh, not been wholly attended to. Um, and you saw this in spades in the Panama Papers context around uh, corporate formation agents uh, and, and lawyers acting as financial intermediaries, for example, for, uh, for customers or clients. Um, those are sectors, especially in certain jurisdictions, that have largely been unregulated, uh, largely are not subjected to money laundering rules and processes. Frankly, they're not trained. There's not culture of compliance. And so there are these corners of the system that, that are just absent, or, or, or at least the, the system is, is not relevant to them. And that obviously creates holes in the system that, uh, that are gaping and, and are problematic. Um, another issue, uh, Chip, that you and I have talked a lot about is, is how risk is actually both managed and understood and ultimately shared. Uh, because at the end of the day, the question is, how do we manage the risk of uh, illicit financing in the system and in sectors? And it's not yet clear that institutions understand that clearly. Part of the reason we engage with some of our clients, frankly. Um, it's also not clear that governments clearly understand that and frankly may not feel responsibility to help uh, regulated entities understand that. So th there is this, um, this question of effectiveness around risk management when institutions, regulated bodies, regulators, and policymakers may not be speaking the same language around uh, both the risk they're trying to mitigate as well as how to manage it. Um, Absolutely. And so, and so in my mind, those, those are some fundamental challenges, and I know there's, there's, there's a lot more. Those are, those are key. Uh, and, and again, I think you could have a, we could have a whole podcast on uh, the challenges around information sharing that are central to many of the comments uh, that, that you've made. Um, I, I would, would add to this, just going back to basics, that I mentioned earlier that you know, we, we focus quite a bit here on challenges associated with um, a much more expansive and visionary set of objectives that put pressure on financial institutions, and particularly banks in the enforcement environment that we've been in. And while that pressure may be uh, certainly warranted, and of course we agree with it, we, we think the whole mission requires um, the full partnership of, of the industry, uh, we haven't talked as much about government. And I would start with you know, the, the, the primary challenges uh, in looking at the architecture of AML, CFT, and government to, to start with, um, are we putting our examiners, our regulators, our supervisors in a position to truly examine, supervise, um, and enforce risk management in this space? Are they trained to do that? Do they understand what illicit finance looks like? If they don't, do they? How can they understand what risk-based controls really look like? And if they do this in certain sectors but not others, are we exacerbating an unlevel playing field rather than alleviating it? Um, I think the question answers itself. Um, if we are forcing industry to be more attentive to this through more judicious and aggressive reporting to FIUs or law enforcement that are not resourced to handle that or are not uh, trained as well to keep up with not necessarily what illicit looks like because it's in their business to understand what the bad guys are doing, but to understand the sophistication of the financial system. How many uh, financial investigators and law enforcement around the world really understand financial investigations to a point where they can distinguish between <clears throat> Fedwire or among Fedwire chips and SWIFT, the differences between commodities and securities and the regulatory distinctions between investment banks and commercial banks, and you know, these sorts of challenges that compliance um, officials must wrestle with in trying to determine uh, risk management practices that make sense across global enterprises 
different product lines and different markets. These are really difficult questions. And for those that have been trained to chase bad guys and look at what bad looks like, do they understand enough about the financial system to understand what good looks like? And, and those, are, those are tough questions. Um, so whether an examiner, regulator, supervisor, uh, analyst, uh, agent, investigator, prosecutor, um, these are more difficult questions for them as well. And th there are stresses in the system across um, the regulatory, FIU, investigatory, uh, prosecutorial, and policy-making functions of the government that are at the guts of the AML system. Yeah. And that's before we get to what are perhaps the more the more difficult challenges that um, are associated with the the uh, expansion of this into the national security arena. Because if that set of challenges isn't hard enough for the government, then what about the introduction of, of real intelligence? And how do we do that? And how do we act on that in a way that protects uh, the rights of individuals and at the same time allows us to fully exploit financial intelligence and real intelligence in ways that uh, protect our country and, and, and our global society? Um, how do we integrate the financial uh, tools that, um, th that uh, we now have into a broader national security strategy effectively, consistently, and fairly? You know, th these are all real challenges on the government side. And, 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 that the, and that the industry, as you know, is increasingly asking as they feel the burden and, and looking at government and saying, are you making these investments too? And if so, are we getting the results on your end? Because on our end, it just feels like a lot of pain. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think the question that industry's asking, and I, frankly, government's asking itself is, um, what does uh, a risk-based system actually mean for us, given the national security implications? Absolutely. Right? So uh, an effect of this blending of the AML, CFT system, and sanctions and national security is a real stress on that risk-based system to say, is this risk-based or is it zero tolerance? Because yeah. If we're saying that it's essential to be able to follow the money, to stop the money, to freeze the assets, to seize uh, uh, property in the context of national security issues around these conducts that, that are illicit and problematic, well then, how can we accept risk? Because the essence of a risk-based model is you're going to accept some degree of failure. Um, but what does that mean when you're saying that these systems are fundamental to not just law enforcement and not just elements of criminality, but to elements of pure national security uh, that implicate a, a much tighter uh, management of risk or a much less lenient uh, assumption of risk than you would otherwise have. And that's a fundamental Huge question. point. Huge point. And, and we see this borne out uh, through the integration of sanctions and AML exactly. more than anywhere, right? And and, uh, and, and I think we've, we've made, again, when we talk about accomplishments, a lot of great work has been done to try to um, facilitate this integration. There's a lot of work that remains, right? Um, but in, in, in sort of popular parlance among uh, we nerds who do this for a living, right? It's, it's um, among us nerds that do this for a living. There's a, there's a recognition that um, you can't have a sanctions compliance regime um, in which there is zero tolerance and have um, a competitive uh, and sustainable uh, financial system that is servicing um, legitimate demand and often urgent and needy demand in high-risk places. So there has to be some give and take in this yeah. where um, notwithstanding the national security importance of some of these tools and requirements, that there is an understanding that if you want us as a financial system out there, we're going to have to have a, cl a closer relationship in figuring out how we service high-risk customers, markets, 
um, products in ways that are good for our global economy and our national security, yeah. Yeah. Um, but also would entail a degree of risk-taking that we're uncomfortable doing as a financial system without greater guidance from, from the government. I think there, there are conversations both in government and industry that are starting to recognize not only the importance of this, but that, but that there are partnerships that can start to, to navigate this. Yeah. Chip, that's a great segue, unless you've got any other nope. key challenges. Let's, it's a let's great segue to talk about a way forward, because the, as you just signaled there, there's a lot of uh, discussion around what are ways of making the system work better, at a minimum based on what's what the current design is and what the current objectives are. Um, but also, and, and you and I have talked a lot about this, what is perhaps a new design of the system that um, ensures that it's more effective and that, that makes it... Uh, uh, more efficient and sustainable in meeting these long-term systemic objectives. Um, but I think this is a good moment to talk about the way forward uh, for, for three reasons. One is we are right uh, at the start, for the most part, there have already been assessments, of the fourth round of these FATF assessments on effectiveness. And so we are seeing before our very eyes the unfolding of this evaluation of whether or not these systems work uh, in jurisdictions around the world. And so um, that that is going to reveal some interesting data points. It's also going to spur uh, greater reflection on the part of governments and, frankly, action on the part of governments and the private sector uh, to look in the mirror, and, as we said, uh, and to take hard, hard decisions. Uh, I, th I think you also have uh, a recognition that we have to figure out ways of making the information we have available to us uh, more useful and more valuable, both within institutions and between institutions and between public and private. This is the whole Patriot Act 314B debate. Can we use uh, the allowance for greater information sharing uh, around anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism to benefit uh, institutions as well as, as uh, the FIUs and, and government authorities? And so this whole question of are there are there platforms that can more aggressively deal with information sharing and then allow for better management of risk? Um, and then finally, a, a question of can there be kind of partnerships, um, public-private, sectoral, uh, that allow for not just better information sharing, but better uh, screening, better, uh, better sharing of cost, uh, and frankly, better sharing of risks. Um, and you're seeing that in places where institutions and even governments are thinking about what that shared risk may look like. Um, again, th there are examples of that around the world, but in many ways that's started starting to set the tone for at least frameworks for a, a more effective, more sustainable system before you get to a big question of can you think about a redesign, which you and I have done and uh, which we'll be publishing a paper, paper on. But what do you think about the way forward, Chip? What, what in your mind, are kind of the, the next big issues and, and things that the listeners should think about? Uh, great question. And, and as always, you, you've got a, a very thoughtful vision here, Juan. Uh, I more simply break this down, I think, into a way forward where we are attacking um, with uh, unprecedented attention uh, implementation challenges of the current design. And that is nowhere more manifest than with company formation and beneficial ownership. And you've seen the G20 really focused on this for the past several years, the FATF, um, others, um, in which uh, 
understanding um, the transparency of the corporate vehicles that enter our financial system is not just a, a, a responsibility of the financial system itself and the banks in particular. It's also a responsibility of uh, company formation authorities and those that they service, that they have the transparency that allows financial institutions to manage risk in more of a partnership along the lines that you're saying. Yeah. Um, so it's an example of where the theme of partnership is critical, but it's also about implementation of a standard that's been on the books where the designers um, behind the FATF architecture really got a lot of this incredibly right way back when. And, but for the first time, you're seeing unprecedented pressure to actually implement some of these really the more difficult elements of the preventive system. So the way forward in part is about um, seeing that those changes are effectively executed and that the pressures that are brought to bear on governments, in part through public awareness, um, ultimately result in the changes that are needed. And we've seen this um, time and again where, and you've heard me say, you know, shocked to be shocked, how, how I'm just, I'm shocked that people continue to be shocked about the abuse of front companies and, mm -hmm. and corporate vehicles to, to launder money, commit terrorism financing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, whether it's the 60 Minutes piece on Anonymous Inc., whether it's the Panama Papers, um, whether it's the one MBD scandal, you know, they're, they're, this is this is routine uh, for those that that are in the business of combating money laundering. That the abuse of front companies is pervasive, and yet we still haven't shut this down in any financial center, and um, to a point where the debates about this are um, finally taking center stage, and um, real expertise is needed to inform how those. Um, actions are, or how those debates are translated into action. So that's implementation. That is part of the way forward, is implementing the requirements or the standards that we have on the books in a yeah. meaningful way. The other and, part and, of this... And, and I think it's worth saying, look, we're not talking about uh, perfection here. No. We understand. No, no. no, no thank you for that. Perfect. Because uh, I, don't, I don't want the listeners saying, look, these guys are Pollyannish and they, you know, they... Yeah, you know, we, we, crucial we've lived, to, we've to lived in the real world. Yeah. We've lived in government. We've lived in the private sector. So we understand that. And this is a risk-based system, right? So, uh, but the question is, you know, what's more effective and what's more efficient and what's sustainable? Because if it's not sustainable, uh, it's, it's not going to help anybody, uh, whether it's government or the private sector, to actually manage these risks. And this, and this gets to your theme of partnership, right? So implementation of the current design would include issues like company formation. It would include issues like regulating non-bank financial institutions, examining them and enforcing these requirements in ways that share the risk and the risk management responsibilities among all the participants in the financial system. So that at the end of the day, if you're the bank that holds the assets of the investment advisor or manager, it shouldn't just be on you to have to understand everything about the risks associated with that account or transaction. If, you, if you're dealing with a non-bank financial institution or you're dealing with a gateway account, how many times have we seen money laundering um, perpetrated through escrow accounts held by law firms? Well, here's the, I'll point to 1MBD again. Hundreds of millions of dollars used to purchase assets in the United States, at least under the allegations of the DOJ civil complaint that was released a couple weeks ago, through escrow accounts by top-tier law firms, top-tier law firms. So, you know, this is an instance, again, where the standards are right, and implementing these are really hard. You know, it's really difficult for politically. It's very difficult um, uh, to, to understand um, in, in parliaments or legislatures, uh, but where implement, implementation is part of the way forward, implementation of existing standards. The other part of the way forward is what you and I have talked about, and it's really exciting, and, and that's, that's a new design. So implement the current design. We clearly need to do more there globally. 
And then where, 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 can we, where can we redesign the system to be more effective? And, and I'll make this point and then turn it back to you. Yeah. The point that you make that I love, I absolutely love, this is, such, this is quintessential sort of Zerati well, thinking. I'm, I'm excited. Is, 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 is the notion of can we leapfrog? Can we leapfrog some of these implementation challenges under the current design through technology that allows us to think about um, a new design that may be um, faster, easier in the way that telecom um, and mobile overtook landlines in points where developing countries said, right. "Why are we burying landlines? Just go right, just go right to satellite." And yeah. are, are, is there is that an appropriate analogy for some of the redesign that technology now allows us to consider around um, understanding and managing risk? And I think the answer to that is, as you know, is, is yes, because yeah. you've written about it, and, and it's, it's going to be exciting well, to be a part of that. Yeah, we've we've written about it, and uh, technology is going to be a driver. We're, that's a little bit of a teaser because I think we'll do a podcast specifically on that, and we've got a paper coming out, so we'll make sure. Uh, our clients, customers, and friends and family will, uh, will, will get that. Um, and, and Someone's got to read it. Excited. Hopefully somebody will read it. Um, so, yeah, so there's there's a lot to all of this, of course, and I think the debate about effectiveness will uh, continue to unfold, and it will unfold in interesting ways as more enforcement actions are undertaken, as the FATF review process happens, uh, as implementation of these regulations, as Chip was just talking about, sort of unfolds and the complexity of the questions of transparency uh, kind of hit us squarely in the face. So all of this is kind of unfolding as we speak. And, it, you know, what's so interesting about this space is, um, though, it, though issues of AML-CFT have been with us for some time uh, and, and we've seen it, there's been such a rapid evolution for uh, what its purposes are and how it's, uh, how it's being used and thought about that it's exciting. It's an exciting field to be a part of, and it's frankly why uh, Chip and I, you and I have built uh, the Financial Integrity Network. And so um, maybe we'll leave it at that, Chip. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's a great way to sign off. I just want to do one thing before we do that, which is I, I said earlier um, uh, how important it is to acknowledge the efforts of those that uh, have really built the system uh, before us, those that, um, that we worked with to, to continue that evolution. And just to say for those that are still doing it, I and mean, obviously we see ourselves as part of that environment too, um, but particularly in the governments that are, are really pushing these issues. We've mentioned the FATF in the fourth round. Um, really tough work by um, the, the FATF members, the, uh, the associate members, uh, really all, all the countries around the world that are, that are struggling to try to, to meet these, these, um, these advanced standards, uh, the people who are associated with that process, and, and the private sector that is, that is trying to implement these things. Yeah, it's it's a it's a heck of a commitment, and uh, and and they're doing incredible work. Um, and then a plea to to the listeners that um, in continuing this work, that this question of effectiveness in this debate is one that uh, is very welcome and is healthy. It's a good debate to have, and it doesn't matter what your position or or your 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 perspective is. Um, what matters is that uh, you contribute and that you inform and that you learn and. Uh, that's certainly how, how I see myself as a participant in the discussion. My position continues to evolve as, as I continue to learn how much I don't know uh, about how, what works and what doesn't work. And That's that, scary. Socrates once said, a wise man knows what he doesn't know. Right? So it's, but at, it's at, the end of, at the end of the day, that we all keep an open mind so that as uh, this debate over effectiveness, which is so important, unfolds, that uh, we, we listen to each other, and, and we learn to, uh, to adjust our positions in the face of new information um, that allows us to ultimately become uh, more effective in protecting the integrity of the financial system and, and our global national security. So 
Um, always great to be with you, Juan. Um, what My a great question. way to kick off the uh, the, the FinCast. Uh, I can't wait to do more of these. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if our listeners feel the same way, but well, we'll um, I'm we'll excited see. to be back. I, I, I hope you have me back sometime soon. <laughs> Likewise, All right, partner. Likewise. And uh, to the listeners, we're, we're planning on doing more of these FinCasts. Uh, we're going to dive deeper on particular issues. We'll do broad thematic issues like we did today. Uh, but we, we hope to uh, not only spur debate and discussion to Chip's point, uh, but to get you more interested and certainly we at uh, the Financial Integrity Network are trying to affect the debate and the work we do, the training we do, uh, the client outreach we're engaged in. So uh, we're excited that this FinCast uh, has gone well, uh, and we look forward to the next one. Thanks, guys. Thanks.